HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Firesider, a health tonic based on the traditional New England cure-all of raw apple cider vinegar and honey. For more information, visit firesider.com. Hi, this is Joe Campanelli, the host of In the Drink. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Gumbo, jambalaya, and jazz. You got it. We're talking New Orleans today on A Taste of the Past. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, here on this half-hour journey through culinary history. And, you know, we often talk on this show about um, the loss of, of regional cuisine and how we're trying to, you know, recapture it and find out what what people are different eating differently across the country, this big country of ours, or are they eating differently? And there is one area that has held forth for, I don't know, probably almost 200 years, um, certainly over 150 years, and call it regional, call it true Southern, call it Creole. You can call it anything you want, but you have to call it New Orleans. And it's New Orleans cuisine, some of the most special and delicious cuisine that we have in the country. And my guest today is Lolas Eli, and Lolas is a New Orleans native and former Times-Picayune columnist. Um, he's now based in, in Los Angeles, which we understand. you got to go where the work is, right? <laughs> he's a writer, a journalist, uh, a food historian, and a documentary filmmaker. He wrote the award-winning PBS documentary, Faubourg Treme, The Untold Story of Black New Orleans. And that actually is sort of the background story um, through the HBO hit series Treme, for which he was also a story editor. And Lolas has also uh, worked on AMC's Hell on Wheels. And he's the, one of the founders of the Southern Foodways Alliance. We do a lot of, a lot of work and, and guests and shows with them. And he's the author of Treme, Stories and Recipes from the Heart of New Orleans, as, lo- as well as uh, a couple others, right? Smokestack Lightning and Corbred Nation. Welcome, Lolas. 
Ah, thanks, Linda. Good to be with you. It is such a pleasure to to have you to really give us, um, I think, a good perspective and background on what you know. Everyone goes to New Orleans and say, "Well, gee, did you go to this museum? Did you see this district? Did you go there?" And the answer will always be, "No," but I ate a lot of good food. So right, right. <laughs> that that is the you know the main draw of New Orleans, and for very good reason. And for for I think a lot of our listeners, they know well. They think of um, you know the the Creole. They they talk about Creole cuisine, not really knowing exactly what it is, or then Cajun, which uh, Paul Prudhomme came along uh, recently, left us uh, mm-hmm. sadly. Um, there are and Creole is a tradition all of its own in food, but also of political descent, both black and white. Right. Can you? Tell us a little bit about the uniqueness of New Orleans and and its background and how it was settled. Gotcha. Well, I think New Orleans food traditions are unique in part because even prior to the American purchase in 1803, New Orleans had already been settled by a European power. So the sense on the part of New Orleans that we needed to to join this country culturally, that somehow the United States offered us something culturally, was not as strong as it might have been in areas, say, in the Midwest, when the first white people were settling and the sense was to try to to, um, to be more like England or be more like uh, the European powers from which these people had come. So what that means, then, is that all along, there's this parallel tradition happening in New Orleans between um, the growing Americanization but also folks maintaining the traditions of cuisine from West Africa, from Europe, from, uh, from Haiti. And so we had this, this different mix of people and a determination to maintain it. So unlike other places where you can have food from a bunch of different regions, you go to New York, you can find food from every country in the world. But I defy you to take me out for a meal of New York cuisine. Right. You're right. <laughs> well, in New Orleans... We have been mixing and mingling for so long that we have a definitive cuisine that is not Senegalese, it's not French, it's not Haitian, it's ours. But it depends on people from each of those countries to make it what it is. Well, and people often say, well, gee, yes, but it was settled by French and Spanish and Portuguese settlers. Yes, but those were Porch, French, and and uh, Portuguese, French, and Spanish settlers who had been living in the West Indies and Latin America, and then exactly. they came to Louisiana. You know, part of what happens is that France has such a well-deserved reputation for great cuisine that the assumption is that everything important in Louisiana cuisine is French. Right. So one of the things I have attempted to do is show the connection between New Orleans cuisine and, say, the cuisine of Senegal and the Senegambia region. Because those people have great food that ain't contingent on what the French did. And consistently, you'll find people, if you tell them, well, the food in Senegal is great, it's like, oh, that's because the French settled there. <laughs> which implies, which not only implies, which embodies a disdain and disrespect for African traditions, which increasingly is being shown to be historically inaccurate. There's a great story named Gwendolyn Midlow Hall, who doesn't deal with food particularly, but who has found that you can actually look at the countries from which Africans were imported into the United States. And in that way, you can get some sense of the cultural and ethnic specificity of these people who are coming into our nation. And in that way, you get some sense of what skills they brought. 
uh, Karen Heston some wonderful work in a book called The Carolina Rice Kitchen about the influence of Africans on the rice growing tradition in Carolina right. is another example. Right, indeed. Uh, you know, I, going back to the documentary that you um, wrote and produced, the Faubourg Treme. Now, tell us about that because I think it's really important for people to understand also the 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 influence of the the first large historic community, and that being the Faubourg Treme. So, can you tell us a little bit about that? Indeed. Um, what happened in in New Orleans is that the French and Spanish had a different concept about slavery. Part of what they attempted to do was give the slave a reason to buy into the system, which meant that through a heroic act or through buying your freedom and other kinds of ways, you could become free. And in that way, a slave could say, well, instead of uh, plotting a revolution, why don't I work really hard and buy my freedom? What it ultimately meant is that there were a lot of free people of color in New Orleans. And they became politically active because often they were educated, and they began to see the hypocrisy of a system in which some men and women were considered inferior to others. And so there was a long history of political agitation on the part of free people of color. Also, you've got to keep in mind that when we're talking about the late 1700s, you have the French Revolution, the American Revolution, and the Haitian Revolution, and also the French Declaration of the Universal Rights of Man. So you have all these, these ties of democracy in the air Ultimately, the United States decided not to go for democracy. But in that period, there was this, this sense that freedom and democracy was possible. And Faubourg Treme was largely a community of free people of color, in part because once the Haitians, after the revolution in 1803, they ended up going first to Cuba and then to New Orleans. It's about one-third free, one-third um, free white, and one-third uh, enslaved. That roughly doubled the population of New Orleans. So again, when we talk about French influence on our city, the most recent influence of Francophone culture was from Haiti in around 1811, 1812, because the Louisiana Purchase meant that the French were not coming there directly from the mainland anymore after 1803. Yeah. And you can imagine, one can imagine, um, the having these free blacks living in a community in Louisiana, what a threat that was to slavery, particularly in that time. Exactly. And it was scary in part because everyone figured that there could be another revolution like the one in Haiti. Yeah. And in fact, um, through your your documentary, which I have to say is a, is a wonderful piece of work, and I, I encourage people to, to try to get a hold of it and take a look at it, um, Faubourg Treme, is that that's really where um, the the whole uh, um, civil rights movement started. Yeah, that was a very important place because what happened is New Orleans fell early in the Civil War because the North realized that controlling the port of New Orleans was crucial in terms of, of controlling uh, supplies and so forth. And once the Union took control of New Orleans, we found is that they gave, there was a, a union newspaper, the Union, which was run by free people of color. And then it later became the Tribune. So these activists were a big part of trying to create 
um, sort of a rehearsal for Reconstruction, a, a society in which there'd be equality among the races. Huh. Well, their way, they had a lot of success in the late 1860s, early 1870s. But ultimately, in 1890, Louisiana passed the Separate Car Act. Um, and so these activists sort of strapped on their boots once again and fought that. That became the case of Plessy versus Ferguson. Now, civil rights people often don't look at that case because it was ultimately a defeat for the forces of democracy and led to separate but equal. But that was the, the, the first big case in terms of civil rights to raise some of the question that would later be raised in Brown versus Board of Education. Right, right, absolutely. And through all this, one thing united all the people of New Orleans. That, of course, was the food. Indeed. Indeed. All right. So tell let's 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 talk about that food. You know, Creole cuisine is really the New Orleans cuisine. But what really is Creole cuisine? <laughs> um, <Uh-oh>. <laughs> it's probably easiest to talk about it in terms of iconic dishes. Yeah. Look at gumbo, which I think has its origins in uh, in okra stews of West Africa. You look at jambalaya, which I think is parallel to jollof rice and chebujin, again, from the Senegambia region. Uh, we also speak of the trinity of, of seasoning ingredients. So, uh, the holy trinity, uh, right? <laughs> exactly. So, uh, when, you know, much like the French have the mise en place, not the not mise en place, what is the, the... Like bouquet, gar, bouquet garni, or that kind yeah. of, of basic seasoning. We chop onions... Uh, no, I'm getting the Trinity wrong. Bell pepper. Onions, Onions bell, bell pepper, and celery, right? Exactly. <laughs> or onions. The came, sort of amended to include some, some garlic. Um, uh, and also there's some techniques that are particularly a part of our cuisine. Uh, um, smothering. Is it like, or it's also étouffée, is the French word for smothering, which is basically you brown the meat, or you sear the vegetables. Then you turn the fire down, cover it, and have the onions and the vegetables and or the meat sort of simmer until they're, they're well seasoned. Um, also, people often talk about Creole as in tomato sauce. So if you talk about shrimp Creole, that means shrimp is almost like a scampi with tomato sauce kind of thing. Hmm. If you go to Puerto Rico or Haiti, often on the menus you'll see a Creole dish, and it means the same thing. It means that this is a dish with tomato sauce. Oh. Well, the thing is that, however, you know, the, and there are always little variations in someone's uh, recipes, as in any dish and as any uh, ethnic cuisine, but the fact that the Creole style of cooking with these sauces, uh, the gumbo in particular, has lasted all this time, it really, you know, gives... Uh, Give some uh, some weight to the fact that it is really very good good cooking. It's good and it and it represents all these different peoples. Exactly. Uh, and you <laughs> you mentioned something interesting in one interview, and in that there are so many different recipes out there for gumbo. And someone says, "Well, what's a really good original gumbo, and who makes the best gumbo?" And you were quoted as saying something, or the title of your interview was something about the 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 best gumbo ever consumed by man mm-hmm. that doesn't that doesn't refer to any restaurant gumbo or any <laughs> what does that refer to refers to my mother's gumbo there you go <laughs> okay. and um, i suppose that 
any Louisiana man would say the same thing. It's just that I'd be telling the truth. <laughs> well, if Mama's listening, he better. So <laughs> Exactly. Well, you know, what became interesting to me, particularly as I became friends with another Louisiana writer, Pablo Johnson, who's from Cajun country, is that there are at least two traditions in Louisiana gumbo. And you talk about the New Orleans tradition, and that gumbo tends to be thinner, tends not to have as thick or dark a roux. And also, when I think of Creole gumbo, I think of a mix of sausage, seafood, and occasionally some poultry. Mm. Cajun gumbos are usually a combination of andouille sausage and some kind of of, uh, poultry. So chicken and andouille gumbo, duck and andouille gumbo. And they're very different to me from most um, most Creole gumbos. But that also gets complicated because, um, particularly with Paul Prudhomme bringing Cajun traditions to New Orleans and training a lot of the chefs who have then gone on to train other chefs, et cetera, et cetera, what you find now is a lot of chefs in New Orleans restaurants are making gumbo with no reference to a mother or grandmother or grandfather who taught them to cook it. They're cooking gumbo like the chef who taught them, who was taught by another chef who taught them, and none of those people in that line are from New Orleans. And which is not to say that everybody in New Orleans makes gumbo the same way or to say that, by definition, these chefs who learned gumbo from books and from other people are not um, as qualified to do gumbo. But the point is that in terms of a tradition, people who come and eat restaurant gumbo often miss the fact that it can be very different from home gumbo in part because of that legacy. Well, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, I want to ask you where one might find that traditional gumbo. So stay tuned. Today's program was brought to you by Fire Cider. Did your grandmother ever tell you to drink raw apple cider vinegar? It's good advice and more common than you may think. For generations of New Englanders, a tot of vinegar was a morning ritual. Taken daily, a tablespoon of unfiltered apple cider vinegar can help support immune function and digestive functions. To the base of certified organic apple cider vinegar, Fire Cider added whole, raw, certified organic oranges, lemons, onions, ginger, horseradish, habanero pepper, garlic, and turmeric. They let this mixture steep for six weeks at room temperature to preserve the living vinegar culture and delicate flavors of the ingredients. Lastly, they blend a generous helping of raw wildflower honey into the mix. The result is potent but balanced, offering layers of sweet, tart, and spice. Fire Cider tastes great on its own or as an addition to tea, juice, or salad. Fire Cider ships direct from their online store and is available at over 500 locations nationwide. Use their store locator to find one near you and ask for a free sample. For more information, visit firesider.com. Hi, we're back, and I'm speaking with Lola Zeli, a New Orleans native, and uh, writer for the purposes of quick introduction again of Treme's stories and recipes from the heart of New Orleans. And we were talking about 
gumbo and the gumbo made by mothers or aunts or grandmothers as opposed to the gumbos passed down from trained chefs. And, you know, it's interesting because um, that you mentioned that there's really um, very little documentation from, let's say, 1800 until probably early 1800 to late 1800 of any, you know, any documented recipes because most of the recipes were being cooked in coffee houses and boarding houses that those things weren't written down. So they had to have been passed down from, you know, mother to daughter to son to grandmother and so forth. Um, so it's interesting that you mentioned that because then somebody had to cobble together their own recipe and then yeah. document it, right? Yeah. Um, and also, I think we have an emphasis on food today that did not exist 100, 200 years ago. Additionally, what so often happens, even when you read old cookbooks, you find that the directions are are kind of scant because there's an assumption that you know what this tastes like, you know what it looks like, and therefore you could say something like cook until done, right. and everyone would know what that meant. Well, in the case of trying to cook a recipe for a dish that you've never had that sort of looks good in the magazine, you don't have a point of reference. And so these days when you write a cookbook, the editors are always telling you to be specific and to give not only time instruction, but also look instructions. Cook it for 30 minutes or until nicely browned, or that kind of thing. You know? <laughs> right, right. Rather than stick your finger in it and taste it, and if it tastes good to you, I guess it must be done. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> right. Um, well, okay, so let's, let's get down to the nitty-gritty. If you were to go and try to find a really good gumbo, as close to your mother's as you could, but where could a person go and taste what you say is an authentic uh, Creolian, uh, New Orleans uh, gumbo? You know, what's funny about that question is, I think about two restaurants in particular, um, Dookie Chase and Commander's Palace, Mm -hmm. both of which have great gumbos, but they change, particularly at Commander's Palace and the other Brennan's restaurants like Mr. B's Bistro and, uh, and Sobu. You'll find that because they have chefs who have been given a certain amount of free reign, that it's not as if um, the gumbo I had in December is exactly the same as the gumbo you're going to have in March. Um, And also, I would just suggest that you taste gumbo at a lot of different places. Because as much as I argue as if there is a right way and a wrong way, I think even in the course of that kind of exploration done on your own, you get a sense of the range. But if you're going to do that, you need to try to go to different kinds of restaurants. Try to go to some old-line restaurants like uh, Galatoire's or Antoine's or Commander's Palace. Um, you got to go to some of the black restaurants like Dookie Chase. And also you got to go to some of the newer places like um, Luke, one of John Besh's restaurants, or Pesh, one of, of uh, Donald Link's restaurants, and try to get some sense of the range of what's out there and decide what it is that most excites you. That's, that's excellent, excellent advice. Uh, you mentioned a couple of names that I think are probably very familiar to most people, and that is, in essence, how so much of, of the New Orleans history and food has survived, and that's through the restaurants. And you mentioned Antoine's, you mentioned Galatoire's, uh, certainly Dookie Chase, Leah, Leah Chase is um, still, still with us in cooking. and. Uh, and those are, you know, those are places that 
um, have been around forever. They've gone through a lot of different iterations. But there are many such places like that in New Orleans that have have stood the test of time, really. Yeah. And that's, well, that's important. Go we, don't, we can't lay claim to the oldest restaurants in the country, but we can lay claim to one of the oldest and strongest restaurant traditions in the country. And that makes a difference. Yes, yeah, absolutely. There are a few other dishes that came about that are so identified with New Orleans as well, but they came a lot around a little later. And, I w- and, you know, with the influx of immigrants, for sure. And I would say that's probably the po' boy and the mufaletta. Can you talk right. about that a little bit? Yeah, actually, <laughs> the po' boy has its origins in a very specific story. Um, Martin Brothers Po' Boy Shop. Well, let me back up. There was a major streetcar strike, and I'm trying to remember the date. I think it was like in the 1920s. And um, it was getting to be pretty ugly. And Martin Brothers had been, uh, they'd worked on the streetcar lines before, and so they were in solidarity with the workers. And so they put out a thing saying that any of the striking workers who needed to come by and get a sandwich, they would give them a free sandwich. And so the idea is that the sandwich would be for the poor boys who were working on the, on the streetcar line during the strike. And ultimately the sandwich took that, that name, Po' Boy. And it varies. You know, you got seafood Po' Boys, you got ham and cheese Po' Boys, you got roast beef Po' Boys. And it becomes a sandwich on which you can make an infinite number of different plays, but it's also iconically New Orleans. Absolutely, absolutely. And then, of course, the Mufaletta. Right. Well, what happened is, particularly after the 1860s, 1870s, among the people who were recruited at times to, um, to work the cotton fields in Louisiana and Mississippi were a lot of Italians. In addition to that, Italians are crucial in terms of setting up shops in the lower French Quarter, and um, and importing goods as well. So the muffaletta is a combination of what we call an Italian roll, who knows if they'd recognize it in Italy, but also <laughs> of an assortment of Italian cold cuts with an olive salad, all of this on one sandwich. So muffaletta is huge, it's filling, and it's also iconically New Orleans. I can tell you I've never seen it in Italy <laughs> many times. Um, but, you know, once again, it's the working man's sandwich. You know, those sandwiches were working men's meals. And so, however, you know, we probably didn't – it probably does exist in Italy. We didn't know it because, you know, the wife fixed it and put it in the lunchbox, and we never saw it. You know, it was, exactly. it was only the man who ate it. You know, um, religion plays played a, a great role in um, – in the cuisine too, and I think majority of the early settlers were all religious. They were all pretty much Catholic as well. Right, right. So we've got this, this, um, you know, this overlying religion um, following the edicts of of the religion for some of the cuisine. <coughs> right, Fridays, you know, you don't eat exactly. meat, you eat fish. Right, so, so the gumbo would be a seafood gumbo. Right. Right. Well, you know, New Orleans is culturally Catholic. And that is less true now than it was, say, 40 or 50 years ago. But I think it's still largely true. There are a bunch of, of ways in which the New Orleans calendar revolves around Catholicism. Uh, Carnival or Mardi Gras is perhaps the prime example. Right. You know, the holiday from, largely from Catholic countries. All right. Um, also, you mentioned um, 
I'd be remiss if if I didn't talk about a particular dish. You had brought up Karen Hess earlier in her Mm -hmm. Carolina Rice Kitchen, and certainly red beans and rice is a dish that we have to talk about, right? Yeah. Well, that um, was traditional Monday dish because that's when people would be doing their laundry, and it's a dish that you don't really have to tin much. You just put it on and check it every now and then to be certain it's not burning, but it's something that just stays on the stove all the time. So it got to be emblematic of New Orleans on Monday. But the other thing is that um, I don't know of any other place in the United States where red beans are anything like a staple. But if you go to Haiti and if you go to the eastern side of Cuba, you'll see that red beans are the staple. And it's striking because you think about Cuba and black beans, but on the eastern side of the island, that's where the Haitians settled after the Haitian Revolution. So the kind of continuity you see there uh, of Haitian influence on the cuisines both of eastern Cuba and of southern Louisiana. And and that is interesting that it, indeed it, you know, you see rice and beans throughout predominantly the south, uh, Florida, just did a, a show on Florida food, and certainly a lot of Florida workers would, you know, survive on, on red beans and rice. Mm-hmm. But but not not necessarily red beans, no. Black-eyed peas, or red black-eyed peas, different than red beans. It's, it's right. you know, uh, cow peas. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, something else that, that I wanted to mention that it's not often written about, and that is the fact that, you know, we've today we think of new orleans and all the great restaurants and all the, the the you know the popular famous names you know crop up in our discussions but a lot of these restaurants also the in the black cooks and the black influence you said make sure you go to some of the black restaurants uh, most of these restaurants were not integrated until the 60s or 70s correct right right um but the other thing though is that in a book called creole feast by um rudy lombard that came out in 1978 one of the things that he documents is the fact that most of the cooks and a large number of the chefs were African-American in these restaurants. Mm-hmm. So in terms of the black influence on fine dining in New Orleans, that's always been there. In fact, it's only changing now recently as you get a bunch of young white kids who are going to culinary school and a bunch of immigrants who've come in since the flood in 2005, who often the dishwashers and the line cooks. But until uh, relatively recently, most of the people doing the cooking in New Orleans restaurants were black. If you go to some of the old line places like Galatoire's or like Bonton's, you'll still see that. You see people have been cooking there for 20, 30 years. Interesting. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's a, an interesting point to note. Uh, and you mentioned Katrina the the great flood well not you know the hurricane but the great flood um it's been 10 years and from what i've heard i'll be going out next week but i've i've heard that restaurant business is even stronger than ever would you agree to that uh i would you got several things sort of combining to make that the case one is the fact that i think a lot of the people who came back tended to be wealthier people who are more apt to go to fine dining restaurants. So when you talk about the fact that the city's population is not as big as it once was, that's true. But I think a restaurant-going population may be bigger. The other thing is that because of rebuilding projects and rebuilding funds, New Orleans did not do nearly as bad in the recession of 2008 as 
other um, cities and states did, which meant that there were a lot of restaurants being built or being founded or chefs going out on their own. So there are a bunch of new places happening. The other thing is that New Orleans, those kinds of changes are really parallel to a lot of what's happening in other parts of the country. Like in L.A., Grand Central Market is an old-time market that's now been turned into, among other things, a fine dining destination. Huh. And in New Orleans, we got a parallel in the St. Rock Market, a former seafood market. And now there are probably about 10 different uh, eateries in there. Yeah, very, slick and, very slick and bright looking, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, interesting. Yeah. Well, I see we're kind of running out of time here, and there's so many so many other things I would want to talk about, restaurants and also just have to have you back on again, Lola. It's been really a pleasure, and I thank you for sharing your time and all your information. I've been speaking with Lola's Ellie, and he is a New Orleans native and former Times-Picayune columnist. He is the writer and producer of Faubourg Treme, um, the untold story of black New Orleans, If and this is a PBS documentary, which is is a really terrific historical experience if you get a chance to see this. As I say, it also brings in some of the jazz. We didn't get a chance to talk about the birthplace of jazz, and but of course, um, that is something that we all know about, the great food, the great jazz, New Orleans. And I also want to mention again that... Um, Lolis is the author of Treme, Stories and Recipes from the Heart of New Orleans. So you can get some of these recipes right out of the book. I don't know. You got your mom's gumbo recipe in there, Lolis? Uh, indeed, but because of the setup of the book, it is, um, it's supposed to be LaDonna Baptiste gumbo recipe, but... Uh, that's my mother's recipe. Okay. All right. Well, well, we'll have to look for that. Again, thank you so much for joining me today. And thank you for listening. This has been A Taste of the Past. And I'm your host, Linda Palaccio. listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.